Well, man, don't you wish it was that easy? How many of you think you could declutter in 84 seconds? Some of you, I I can just feel your pain as you see him bust a fishing pole or hit a hammer on a computer. Yeah, toss all the electronics aside. You were thinking of all the other possible ways, you know, to declutter with those things. Well, we're talking today about simplifying in the area of our possessions. And um, I don't know how many of you have ever had that moment where you, somebody started talking about something and you were like, I'm pretty good at this. And you're kind of in your head, you're kind of giving yourself a pat on the back, thinking this can be good because I, I do this already. And I have to just start today with a confession. That's kind of what I thought about when I thought about possessions and especially when I thought about Jared and I's activities and hobbies, uh, that being one of the areas where we can accumulate a lot in the United States. And I was pretty sure that we had less than most people until I did an inventory of our hobbies. And um, the facts are our friends, folks. So I encourage you, maybe this week, that's all you need to do is your inventory. And it will raise your awareness of your, of your riches. Because we love to swim. And so, of course, we have swimsuit. And I have to have cap and goggles, too. Not one kind of goggle, but a couple kinds. Because they do different things. Because I'm a competitive swimmer, right? Two, tennis rackets and the balls that go with them. And racquetball rackets and racquetballs. And bicycles with helmets and backpacks and hiking boots. And hiking poles and camping gear, which is a tent. Sleeping bags, sleeping pads. We need them at our stage of life. Cooler. And hiking socks. And, of course, on those now, we have learned we need four pairs each. You can't do a hike without that. And... Camelback water bladders and a water purification system, just in case. And day hike packs and golf clubs and golf shoes and golf balls and golf tees. And, oh, man, we're really stepping on things. And maps of hikes and books of maps of hikes. And then there's the motorcycle, the motorcycle helmets, the motorcycle gloves, the motorcycle leathers. They are leathers, not outfits, folks. Don't use the wrong terminology here. And then there's the pool toys, which, of course, are strictly something for our grandkids, not for us. And then there's the board games. And I don't even want you to go to books because that would just undo Jared and I, okay? We actually still, even with electronic books, we still have a lot of hard copy books. So as I considered this and I began to contemplate our garage, And I realized that besides the one car for the two-car garage that it houses, that our garage is pretty much a room meant to store all of our hobbies and activities that we like to enjoy together. Uh, um, Except for one, it also houses our already put-together artificial Christmas tree ready to go for this year. That's where we keep it. And I realized that, oh man, I don't have this thing down on stuff either. I'm not so good at it. I need Jesus to help reorient me to my stuff. And so I'm sitting here with all of you. I'm listening. I'm looking at the scriptures with you because I'm experiencing God's refinement in the middle of it. So I've kind of told you a little bit about mine, but how about us? And let's take the us since I can't go to your house and your garage and your drawers. Don't worry, folks. We're not going to do that. But let's talk about the collective us across the U.S. I just want to mention a few things that we um, invest in, that we spend money on, and that we accumulate. First of all, professional sports, $25.4 billion. A lot of this is for tickets as well as paraphernalia. 
Oh, and then who could live without the dollar store? $30 billion a year in the dollar store. And then, of course, if we use our credit card for some of these purchases and things, there's the late fees, and that's $18 billion a year is spent on late fees. And then I had to include this one, though it is food item, Twinkies. Yes, because they almost bit the dust, but we revived them with our $500 million worth of purchases this last year. How about tattoos? $2.3 billion. Now, I could have said artwork, because many people, that is body art. Okay, golf balls. 500 million. Don't tell me how many are in your garage. Taxidermy, all for the hunters out there. You must stuff your trophy or have it stuffed. And taxidermy is taking up $800 million. And then video games, $17 billion. I, I know none of you play those though, right? And then romance novels, $10 billion. And I have to tell you, Natalia, who does, <laughs> isn't that a great picture? She couldn't use most of the covers that are on the romance novels. Just saying. She's a good, righteous senior in high school, and she sent me a little text about that. Yeah. And then there's the gambling, $34.6 million this past year. Billion, excuse me, yeah, billion. And then just to be equal opportunity offenders, let's throw coffee and beer up there side by side. $11 billion on coffee and $96 billion on beer. I won't tell you what I think of that one. Okay, you probably already know. So then let's turn our attention to a more family-focused individual figure, and that's how much the average family in the U.S. spends on vacation. So let's look at a family of four, and they spend on average $4,800 on vacation. So let's talk clothes for a minute. The average person in the U.S. spends $1,700 per year on their clothing. Now, they did a recent uh, research project in the UK, and they discovered that women will spend almost one year of their life, 287 days to be exact, picking out their outfits and what they're going to wear. Okay, it also found that on average, women are going to try on two outfits each morning before settling on the one. And one to two women, one, (laughs) one and two women spend 15 minutes each night thinking about what they're going to wear the next day. Now, men, you're not far behind this. You're, the gap is closing between men and women on these figures. But here's the interesting piece. Men, you spend three months of your life waiting for women to get ready. <laughs> That's right. If you ever wanted to, you know, a little ammo there, an equal opportunity offender today. So there's this whole movement that's developed called the capsule wardrobe movement. And it's all about encouraging people to wear the same thing every day or close to that, you know, wearing the same kinds of things each day where you just buy a bunch of the same thing. And the thing is, this came out of research on what it means when we simplify just even that one thing in our life, the clothing in our life. Here's the first thing. There's fewer decisions to be made, so there's less decision fatigue. And a lot of you have heard the research on decision fatigue, which is interesting. It's just the more decisions you make in a day, the sooner your brain gets fatigued. And if your most important decisions are happening later in the day, and you've used it all up with what to wear in the first three, and what to put on and what accessories to add, then you have less decision, wise decision-making power left. Okay, that's the short of it. I'll let you read the more scientific way of putting that. 
But, you know, this is why our president, President Obama, wears blue and gray suits. He's got a whole closet of them. No decision. It's the blue or it's the gray. Did you know he eats the same thing for breakfast and for lunch? By the way, it's chicken salad sandwich for lunch, which if I had one thing, it wouldn't be that. But (laughs) why does he do that? He makes it clear in an interview. He said, I don't want to use my decision-making power on things as meaningless as what I wear and what I eat. And so for those two meals a day, he sticks to the same thing. Now, Mark Zuckerberg, a Facebook founder, he does the same thing. His outfit's a little different, though. It's not the blue and gray suit. Instead, it's the jeans and the T-shirt, right? But that's very intentional and cultivated on his part because he said, I make my most important decisions happen as the day progresses, and I need to save my decision-making ability, my wisest decisions for later. So it's not only that you have fewer decisions and you can decrease your decision fatigue, but it also leads to less wasted time, less stress, less wasted energy, less expense. And a lot of people report from wearing the same thing regularly that they feel more put together, not less, and that they feel more at peace. So I decided to give myself the test. And for the last six days, I've worn this same outfit Every day, day in, day out, the same earrings, the scarf, the everything. I've learned a few things about it. First of all, no one noticed, or if they did, they were too polite to comment. (laughs) Secondly, never select a scarf as part of your seven-day wardrobe. (laughs) It's like wearing a bib for seven days by the time you get done. Okay, I did wash it last night and hung it to dry, so you can be assured when you hug me, you won't get my remains of the day, okay? So there's, there's that piece of it. But the thing is, I had some really good reflection time with Jesus because I spent so much less time. And I'm not a real haggler over what I'm going to wear, but I still spent a lot less time by wearing the same thing. I mean, I went to my closet. There it was, right there, the one thing. Put it all on. And the thing is, what I discovered about myself is I could live with a lot less than I do. That was one of my observations. And my second observation was this, that... I hold on to some clothes long past their usefulness for me or their ability to be used by me as some kind of security blanket of some sort. I'm not sure what that means yet because I haven't spent as much time as I need to on that. But I did discover that less was more, less time, fewer decisions, and I had a lot less to care for. I mean, I didn't do hardly any laundry this week except for my man. I took care of him. So... The big idea today, though, is it really just about our stuff? Is it really just about our clothes and our possessions? Well, I'm here to tell you it's not just about that. It's not just about reducing decision fatigue. It is all about the most important thing in our life. It is about who will win our hearts and our minds for relationship with Jesus Christ. It's about our relationship with him. And here's the big idea. The world wants our wholehearted attention and affection. And Jesus wants to set us free from that so that we can love him and follow him, obey him with everything that we've got. I want to be able to do anything he asks me to do and go anywhere he asks me to go. And stuff, all kinds of stuff, can get in the way of our relationship with Jesus and derail it. So how do you and I combat this pull on our souls for more? The endless parade of wants that are portrayed in advertising as our needs. And how do we keep that stuff, all the stuff of life from interfering in our relationship with Jesus? 
You remember the, the parable that Jesus told. It was about the four kinds of soil and the, the farmer with the seed, and the seed was God's word. And one of the four soils was the thorny soil. And in the Northwest, we know that as the blackberry and thistle bush, you know, soil. And we've got lots of it, right? You can get your berries for free here. But Jesus tells us what the thorns in the soil represent in Luke 8:14 when it says this the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear but as they go on their way they're choked by life's worries riches and pleasures and they do not mature now that word for choked is kind of an interesting word because it doesn't just mean to strangle something completely which is what we think of but it means to squeeze the life out of something by with too much of something else to squeeze the life out of something with too much of something else. So the life of God, the word of God, can be squeezed out, crowded out of our lives, literally by the stuff of life. John describes it another way in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Get your Bible buckles on because we're, we're going through a lot of scripture. Verse 15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So John's not talking here about people when he uses the term the world. He is talking about desires, stuff, and everything on this planet that's under the control of the one who's called the prince of this world, Satan himself. John uses three phrases to give us a really clear picture about some things about stuff that can distract us from following Jesus, that can distract us from giving our whole heart, our whole attention, and all our eyes on him. And there's these three things, the lust of the flesh. And this lust of the flesh just refers to everything that's materialistic, everything material. And it also refers to the, our desires and that ability to rely on ourselves and to fulfill our every whim and need, if you will. It includes somebody choosing to live entirely for themselves. It's everything egocentric and selfish. That's the lust of the flesh, all the desires associated with that. And then there was this one, the lust of the eyes. And that's you and I's tendency to be captivated by things from the outside in instead of the inside out, where we're captivated by the beauty of something on the outside. And the lust of the eyes is when we divorce that beauty and that lure of that outward thing with a love of righteousness. So it's divorced from that love of goodness. And right from the opening pages of the Bible, you might remember Eve, the first woman. This is what happened. She sees the one thing that God said you can't have. And it looked beautiful. It looked good to eat. And she wanted to have it, and she did. She divorced what God wanted her to do from the beauty, the outward beauty of that fruit, whatever it was. That's the lust of the eyes. And then there's this one, the pride of life. This is another interesting word. It's only used here and in James 4.16. And this word defines somebody who defines themselves or finds their identity in symbols. Symbols like wealth, degrees, cars they drive, clothes they wear, parties they get invited to, people they know, and people they're related to. And it's someone who thinks that their value and their importance comes from these things. 
So the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, all of these are battling for our attention and our hearts in relationship to Jesus. And greed is a great word that can sum them up. It's the consumptive drive that fuels our culture. This word greed, it's the intense desire for more of something. It comes from the old English word voracious. And a lot of us know the definition of voracious. That's to always be wanting more. Always be wanting more. That describes greed really well. And some of you might recall a very famous speech on greed given in the movie Wall Street by a a man named Gordon Gecko, who's played by Michael Douglas. This is a, a very famous speech that many have repeated. And here it is. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. It cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit in all of its forms. Greed for life, greed for money, for love, for knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Now, I know somebody who summed it up in much fewer words, and is, he's a candidate for president. His name's Donald Trump. He summed it up with these words, you can't be too greedy. So how do we keep our attention and our affection on God in a culture that fosters and even promotes this kind of thinking? It is the underpinnings of capitalism, though not the whole of it, but the underpinnings that many people subscribe to. We're all susceptible to thinking that my interests will benefit the whole. We're all susceptible to wanting more, to mistaking the stuff in life for real life. And so I want to take a look with you at four things that counteract greed. Four things that counteract greed. Focus on what's eternal, not temporary. Be a steward, not an owner. Give more, not get more. Be content with what you have. I just want to unpack these quickly. Each one's exceedingly briefer. That's to give you hope, everybody. So let's take a look at that first one. Focus on what is eternal, not temporary. Colossians 3.2 says it really plainly. Some of you could quote it. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So if you're a person just examining the claims of Christ, you might ask, what is that? Is that like we're supposed to get in a certain meditation position, reach our hands out and close our eyes and visualize whatever we imagine heaven to be? No, that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's asking us to do is to discipline our thoughts, to focus them on what's eternal. Our thoughts about what is going on here should always be set against the backdrop of eternity, of heaven. And what he's really saying is, don't live like this world is all there is. Don't live like this world is all there is. Now, Jesus goes on to apply this to how we use possessions when he says in Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21, these words. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So Jesus is saying, don't focus on the stuff that is here today and gone tomorrow. But instead, focus on the true treasure. The treasure that endures for 
eternity. And I'm kind of interested. What is that treasure exactly? Well, when Jesus says these words in the Luke account, he uses this little preface to them. He said, so he said, sell your possessions and give to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven. So what makes our focus eternal when it comes to our possessions? This is it. We focus on the eternal when we use our possessions to love and serve other people. We're focused on the eternal when we use our possessions to love and serve others. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 and 7, he says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Stuff is temporary. We can't take it with us. And people in ancient times needed to know this too. In fact, one of my favorite passages about our being aware or living with an awareness and a focus that this is very temporary and there's something bigger and grander and larger that's going to last forever is this passage out of Psalm 39, verses 4 through 6. Let me read it for you. It says, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You've made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you. At best, each of us is but a breath. Let's stop there for a moment. I want to invite all of you. Would you take a breath right now? That's really brief, isn't it? Each of us is but a breath. And he goes on to say, we're merely moving shadows and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. So I love the picture here because the picture that they wouldn't have gotten in ancient culture was that we are travelers here. We are guests, if you will, here on planet earth. This is not our permanent residence We are simply a traveler passing through. And to them, that would have been very significant because there was extreme expectations, particularly in Jewish culture, on what you did for guests. You took them in. But let me just remind ourselves for a minute about what a guest does. You see, I found I don't always live like I'm a guest here. Guests know that they're not permanent residents. You'd say, well, somebody should have given my guests that memo. I've lived with that before. Guests have privileges, not rights. Guests seek permission for certain activities and uses of your home. Guests are temporary and they remember that. Guests respect the owner's wishes and guests are grateful. Here's the deal. It's just this memory. We are a breath. The message says we're a puff of air, a moving shadow. We're fleeting, temporary. We are God's guests here. And there is so much more than this fleeting life. There is a resurrection life awaiting us. Eternal life in the presence of God with transformed bodies, with the end of all disease, all chronic illnesses, all disabilities, and every body restored to a functioning we've never dreamed of, to something we can barely imagine. And when we focus on that, This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. It changes the way we live. And it changes my relationship with my stuff. 
So my in-laws, Jake and Jean, they're no longer with us. They're with Jesus. But they had this poem hanging on their wall in their house. They had several of them that were very meaningful for me visiting them. And this one's called Only One Life. It's written by a missionary. His name's C.T. Studd. He started in China, went to India, and went to Africa. Amazing um, missionary, lived by faith in God. And he wrote, and I'm just going to read the first stanza, which was on their plaque on the wall. These words titled Only One Life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be past and only what's done for Christ will last. Oh my, so much of what I spend my life on isn't the lasting, temporary, moving our focus off of the temporary and onto the eternal. When we focus on what is eternal, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus and the future that he's preparing for us, it's absolutely incompatible with consumerism and greed. Nothing you do in following Jesus is useless. So today our question is, where's our focus when we think about our possessions. Focus on the eternal, not the temporary. The second thing was to be a steward, not an owner. And that steward word's kind of old-fashioned now, but it's just a word that meant someone who manages and cares for the land and property of another person. And Jesus called us stewards in several of the parables that he shared. He made it clear we're caring for his world. We're caring for his property, his land, his stuff. I can remember when this first came home to me. I, Jared and I had managed two different sets of apartments, and now we were house-sitting a house for some people while they were in Scotland. And I had been taking care of other people's stuff and cleaning up after people a lot, right? When, have you ever cleaned other people's apartments? Well, I've done that a lot. And I, so I was kind of having a complaint session with God, just not to get this too holy here for you. Uh, but it was real. I was out raking the leaves under a big oak tree in the fall. For this family that was in Scotland, I was just making sure we kept the place up and didn't want the grass killed. And I just was telling the Lord, Lord, it'll be so cool when I can start doing stuff for us. When the thing that I'm fixing up and that I'm caring for is ours. And he said, actually, Anne, you're always going to be house-sitting. You're house-sitting for me. Everything that's here, I own. And you'll always be my steward. And it absolutely transformed my attitude. We house set some more, by the way. And we rented a bunch more places before we bought our first house, of which I became just a little more official house sitter. But I never forgot that moment. Paul says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So what's the temptation when any of us get more? And we all have a lot by the world's standards. But when we get more, we can shift our trust from God onto ourselves. And we can subtly begin begin to think that we are the owners and we brought this about instead of trusting in the one who owns it all. Jesus' words are very clear in Luke 14, verse 33. 
when he said this. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has, including the stuff. Surrender to Jesus means I surrender my stuff. And I've found that the greatest test of whether I'm a steward and an owner often comes when I get more. Because it's interesting what Jesus asked me to do with the more. And this happened to the missionary I talked about, C.T. Studd. You see, when he went to China, he was known as one of the Cambridge Seven that went there, start the China Inland Mission, and a, a world-transforming movement. And, but it wasn't met with immediate success. But while he was there, his dad died, leaving him a fortune of 29,000 pounds. Now, today... In today's exchange rate, that would be about 45,000 U.S. dollars. That doesn't sound like much, maybe, to some of us. But in that day, I'm not sure what the exchange rate was, but it was a lot more money that would go a lot further. But he didn't spend a dollar of it on his mission. No, he gave it to Moody Bible Institute. He gave it to, to a mission for orphans administered by a guy named George Muller, if you've read any of his books. And he gave it to a man's work with the poor in his native country of England. And he gave it to the Salvation Army in India, one of the places that he had a passion to see people know Jesus in. He gave it all away. Not one dime of the more he received. He treated it like he was the steward and not the owner. So here's a few ideas for us to reorient us to being stewards, not owners. Because as far as I know, we're not all coming into inheritances soon. And these come from The Freedom of Simplicity, a wonderful book by Richard Foster and reworded slightly by me. First of all, join the happy revolt against the propaganda of marketing. And what is he saying here? Question, analyze, challenge the truth behind what they're telling you about whether you really need it, about what that can really do for you. Because so often it's appealing to the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh when you really analyze And resist the consumer quest for more. Second one, when you decide you need something, check with God first and give him the opportunity to provide it. Before you go out and make it happen yourself. I have known so many people who got impatient. We're not very good at waiting nowadays. We've got express everything. Now you can even use your phone, mobile device, and send your order into Starbucks and not have to wait there. Pick it up off the counter, right? It's fast everything. And that, believe it or not, is changing our habits. Without us choosing it, it's changing our habits. So waiting on God and waiting another two weeks before I go out and buy that thing or before I pursue this avenue to receive that thing, when maybe God wants to give it to me in a whole other way and save resources to give to someone else. The next one is cultivate relationships and conversations with others instead of stuff. The next one is make your recreation healthy, happy, and gadget-free. Of course, that minus your Fitbit, I'm sure he meant that, to put that in there, okay? Or your heart rate monitor or all the other gadgets we've attached to our exercise. But the important thing is make it healthy, happy, and gadget-free. The next one is reduce spectatoritis. I love it when you can make up words. And and he made this one up. I just want you to think to the $25.4 billion spent on professional sports. And, hey, I like watching professional sports with the best of you. But what he's saying is reduce that and instead encourage cooperative games and play together. And when I say that, when I say the game word, my husband hears fingernails on a chalkboard. (laughs) And we had a fine time cheering our ducks on last night as well. 
Reduce spectatoritis. I'm talking to myself here, folks. I want to make sure you know that. Then the next one is know the difference between significant travel and self-indulgent travel. Refuse to believe the lie that if you've missed the glamour spots of the world, then you've missed half your life. Because there's some very wise and fulfilled people that never traveled very far at all. And at the top of that list would be Jesus. He lived in a time of great affluence when the Roman uh, culture and kingdom, if you will, was at a very rich time. And yet he didn't. That's not where he spent his time visiting all the, the sites. So you're in good company. If you travel, give it a purpose. Stay in places that identify with the common people in the country. Albert Schweitzer, an amazing missionary to Africa, he visited America and a newspaper reporter asked him this question, why are you traveling in third class on the train? And he replied, because there wasn't a fourth class. That's right. He wanted to identify with the common people. How often do we work to do the opposite? So the last one is buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. This just gets at our identity and how attached it can be to things. As we consider what we really need, it could really help us to remember Mark Twain's observation about our culture when he said, civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Civilization is a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. And our question today for us is, what are your unnecessary necessities that alone would make a great contemplation this week with jesus and the holy spirit brings us to number three give more get less and this is like the most proactive thing that any of us can do to help us keep a god-centered life and to stand against and combat the influx of greed Luke 12, verses 33 and 34, which we read earlier, says this. I'm just going to read the first sentence. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. This was Jesus' answer for turning away from greed. It was to instead use what you have to love and serve others. And 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, Paul writes these words. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud, And not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all that we need for our enjoyment. And look at this verse. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. Always being ready to share with others. And by doing this, they'll be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future. So that they may experience true life. More equals better is the fundamental drive of consumerism. But the truth is, the truth of God's word is that more isn't always better. Sometimes you and I simply have to say enough. I have enough nice clothes. I have enough. I have a car that's good enough. I have enough stuff. In fact, most of us, including me, don't just have enough. We have too much. And the best thing we can do is to give more. So I haven't told too many stories about my sister Lynn here, except maybe the story of when I threw my arm in my sleep with a cast on it and gave her a bloody nose in the middle of the night. But my sister Lynn, she's my older sister, and she's one of my heroes. 
her and her husband, Dennis. You see here the odometer for their 1998 Honda. And do you see the miles that are on it? 500,000. That just happened last week, folks. And just a few days ago, they picked up their new-to-them car, a Honda CRV, with 22,000 miles on it. But that's not what really moves me about my sister's story. It's what they did with the money that they saved by not replacing that car sooner. You see, a whole bunch of us gave them a really hard time for keeping a 1998 car, for driving it that many miles. Oh, we had all sorts of reasons that they should ditch that. Me starting at about the 250,000 mile mark, right? They took a lot of flack from people on her job, people in the neighborhood, all over the place. But they didn't. They said, we think it's still good for a few more miles. So what did they do with that money? Lots of giving. Now, My sister doesn't know that I know these things because she never talked about it. But I did a little research. And the most recent gift was $1,000 to help a young couple who's trying to get pregnant through in vitro fertilization. And there was another $2,000 given to a serviceman upon his return from four tours of Iraq to help him get started in a dream that he had. And there was another $2,000 plus given to a girl who wanted to go on a missions trip, 11 countries, In 11 months. And there was another gift to help send a young woman to Uganda to visit Lori Dickerson. Another $1,000. And I have barely scratched the surface of what could happen because somebody decided that they had enough. Give more, get less. It's the secret to greed-proofing our life. And my sister Lynn and her husband Dennis know this so well. And last but not least, be content with what you have. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says it so plainly. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. And I like to say this is just being content with presence, his presence, not presence as in under the tree. So I love fishing stories because I grew up with a fishing dad and we all were taught how to fish. It brings up the warmest memories of me and I loved this story. You see, a rich businessman was disturbed because he came out to go fishing and saw another fisherman sitting beside his boat doing nothing. He said, why aren't you out fishing? And he said, because I've caught enough fish for today. And he said, well, why don't you catch more fish than you need? This rich man asked him. And he said, what would I do with them? And he said, you could earn more money. And he said, you could buy a better boat, and then you could go out deeper, and you could catch more fish, and then you could sell those fish, and you'd make even more money, and you could purchase nylon nets, and you could catch even more fish and make more money, and pretty soon you could buy a fleet of boats and be a rich businessman like me. And the fisherman asked, then what would I do? He said, you could sit down and enjoy life. And he said, what do you think I'm doing now? Less equals more. It's the not-so-new math. It's called Jesus math. So I invite you to consider these four questions this week. First of all, where's your focus? Secondly, where are you tempted to find your identity and stuff? Thirdly, where does Jesus want you to give more this season? There's not a pat answer to any of this. It's being Jesus-directed, isn't it? This all comes back to Jesus. 
And last, what area of your life do you struggle most with contentment? So it's time for that participation challenge, the invitation to do something together this week. Number one, select one closet and purge it this week and give the gently used clothing to Hillsborough Family Resource Center. So I did go through one closet. I didn't say all my closets, but one. Okay, one so far. And I came up with this bag of wonderful items, shoes and purse and lots and lots of clothing on top of that. Kind of hefty. I don't even know how many items are in there, but a lot. And as part of my wearing one outfit for seven days and really reflecting with Jesus, realizing I can do with less. And so being able to do that one. And the second one is identify seven things, including accessories that you'll wear this week. Try it out. Take the plunge. See what you learned this week about your attachment to stuff and in particular clothing. And in that time, reflect with Jesus about where your treasure is. Thirdly is identify and set aside, and this is really exciting, 10 non-clothing items that you can donate to the student winter camp benefit sale that's going to happen right here on January 16th. That's a Saturday. The items will be received January 11th through the 15th, and the sale will happen on Saturday, and all the proceeds will go to help our students go to winter camp. The thing is, we can't store all your stuff for a month or six weeks. We'd like to. We'd like to make it easy, but we will ask you, set them aside, put it someplace in your house. It's already taken up room anyway, right? This might just be more efficient. And then you can bring it here on the 11th. They'll even have trucks that can pick stuff up at your house. So there'll be more details later. But make good use. Use your possession to help love and serve others. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just want to say thank you for challenging me, for refining me. And Lord, in that, I know that you're speaking to us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray for each person here. They just hear you whisper to them. Put your finger on their life and what you have for them. And Lord, it is our prayer that we surrender all that we have and follow you. And that you be our focus. And that we'd remember there's more out there. There's an eternity waiting to be spent. And Lord, would you help us this week to use all that we have to love and serve other people? Thank you so much, Lord, for changing us and reorienting us to your math, Jesus' math. In your name, Jesus, amen.